Yes, it was extraordinary uh, in the early years. On some occasions when God seemed to be moving, it was impossible to, to get people in. They would actually sit on the pulpit steps. Wow. I think you have to say that was a work of God. God had a moment that he wanted to, to speak and to see them pouring in was an extraordinary sight. What does it look like to sustain a Bible teaching ministry for over 70 years? In today's episode of the Bible Matters podcast, we sat down with Dick Lucas to ask him about his life and work in gospel ministry. Dick was the rector of St. Helens Bishopsgate for 34 years from 1961 to 1995, a time in which the church grew from a handful of people to one of the largest churches in the Church of England. Amongst the many initiatives Dick pioneered was a midweek ministry to the workers in the City of London, which saw hundreds of attendees every single week and continues even today in Bible talks across the capital. In 1986, Dick started the Proclamation Trust, which trains and encourages ministers in expositional Bible teaching, the style of preaching which Dick himself became internationally renowned for. Now aged 98, Dick still regularly records content of his own Bible study and teachings. We sat down with Dick to ask him more about how he began his ministry and what gave him the convictions to guide it. My name's Leo Elborn. I'm Tiff Stromso, and this is the Bible Matters Podcast, encouraging faithful Bible teaching and ministry. Dick Lucas, welcome to the show. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Dick, what was it that made you first think you might go into full-time Bible teaching ministry? I think there's really no doubt about that. Uh, I went to these school camps when I was about 15. As many people did in those days, that's where they discovered the truth. Uh, our family was a church-going family, so I think I knew something of the truth, but certainly not how to put it across. And at these camps, and particularly the one I went to, uh, the speakers were mostly uh, graduates or undergraduates under the training of the leader. And I think looking back, the standard there was probably as high as anything I heard wow. amongst younger people. So I was very privileged, really, to hear the gospel um, explained so clearly and well. Uh, you know, prayers morning and evening for a crowd of school people had to be brief and to the point, and well done, otherwise people went to sleep. <laughs> so that was the first influence, and I think probably the greatest uh, at the beginning. If there was another great influence, it would be, I think, John Stott. When I first went as a 15-year-old, he was still uh, an undergraduate, but still, I think, a very fine speaker then, of course. But later on, I, I got to know him in the ministry, and he became a friend. And I think probably his expository preaching was that which informed most young Anglicans, and wider afield for that matter. He was outstanding for clarity. So it was hearing 
people like John Stott and yes. hearing the Bible taught well that made you think? I'd I like- think we were very fortunate because until that time, expository preaching was not the common denominator. Hmm. And that was largely due, I suppose, in the end to liberal theology, which had uh, caused people to lose confidence in Scripture. And therefore, during the 20s and 30s, you'd have heard, at best, topical preaching, exhortation, and best thoughts. Uh, So the pulpit had gone into a very bad decline in the 20s and 30s. And it was the men of that era, the uh, immediately post-war era, that saw the beginning of the recovery of expository preaching. Now, Dick, you've been involved in ministry for 70 years. Can you share with us some of what that has looked like and what that has involved? If you're in the church ministry, you're responsible for preaching uh, more than once a week. I was thinking of my curacy, and people would wonder what I was doing. I was not rushing around the streets visiting the elderly, which is what my rector wanted me to do, which was, of course, absurd, because I was there only a short time, and uh, there were no young people in church. So I saw my job to be that, and I would think probably every week, I would speak at least five times. I'd have to visit the hospital and say a few words. I'd have to deal with the Sunday school teachers, and then I'd have to speak at the Sunday school. Then I would have the young people, uh, and perhaps uh, another talk as well elsewhere. So I was plunged into that right at the beginning, Fortunately, I had the wit to realize that if I didn't keep my mornings to myself, I wouldn't have anything to Mm. say. And therefore, I didn't do what I think the rector, who was a very conventional fellow, expected me to do, which was trudging down the streets. When I did trudge down the streets, I found myself met with a a young mother with three children in her hands and dirty washing. You know, quite the last thing she wanted to eat was the curate. (laughs) So I think probably I was wiser than that, but I had no option. So it taught me straight away that the ministry is, whether you like it or not, a speaking ministry, and I better get on with preparing for it. So I had a letter this week from a man who said that uh, his first vicar, who is a fine man, got so involved with people on Saturday that he had nothing for Sunday. It's an obvious, obvious trap, isn't it? Mm. People want to talk to you and... Time goes and you find yourself with very little to say on Sunday. Mm. So just to paint the picture, where was that curacy? Was that in London? Seven Oaks. Seven Oaks, I see. My rector was a dear man. He was uh, long past it. In those days, that's directly after the war. When was I ordained? 1951, sorry, 51. (laughs) So it was a little while after the war. But incumbents were wretchedly paid. It was only about that time that the church commissioners sorted things out so that a man got a living wage. So these poor men couldn't retire. So my rector, who was a lovely man and had been a great preacher in the Fens in his youth, where he used to draw enormous crowds, according to the story, 
had become really very difficult to listen to um, because he really hadn't prepared, and so he just rattled on in his sermons. He was a lovely guy. We got on very well. He just left me to it. Thankfully, I'd had the training of these camps before, so I'd had Mm. four or five years of training as a leader. So I think I could actually be trusted. Uh, If I'd been really green, I don't know what would have happened. (laughs) So against all the rules that the bishop might have expected, I preached every other sermon, either morning or evening, to a very large congregation, because in those days, early 50s, parish churches had big congregations, and so next church was packed to the gunnels. Heaven knows why. Uh, There was very little from the pulpit, (laughs) except that he was a delightful man. (laughs) Um, he just ought to have retired five or six years before. We got on famously because, and this sounds awful, doesn't he? He let me do what I wanted. And, <laughs> and I would have been stranded had I not had this long training as a leader in these camps. I had been a leader for four or five years. Frankly, that was better preparation than my theological college, which was quite useless because none of the staff could preach. But of course staff can't preach because they're appointed for their academic abilities. Mm. Yeah. Dick, by the time you got to London, what did your ministry look like? Well, I'd been very fortunate. Uh, I'd had three and a half years preaching every other service unless we had a visitor. Uh, then I was preaching, speaking during the week as well to, to the young people who were hungry to listen. We had a large... Grammar plus boarding school at Seven X, and we had a lot of young people coming to the youth fellowship. Uh, I'll speak about that in a moment. After that, I did not go to a second curacy, and I was very lucky because I went onto the staff of the Church Pastoral Aid Society as the candidate secretary, that is, looking uh, looking after people who were thinking of ordination, which meant a lot of travelling and a lot of speaking and gradually it gave me the opportunity to speak in all sorts of situations, like taking university missions. So I took a mission both at Oxford and at Cambridge during that time, which was, of course, uh, a terrific uh, challenge to face, and therefore you jolly well had to know your stuff and know what you were doing. I was free to do that, and I think that was providential because I couldn't have come to St. Helens if I hadn't that, had that training. So I had a curacy for three and a half years, and then I was with Church Blaster Aid Society until 1960, and I was came to St. Helens in 1961. But I had another additional advantage, that when I was working for Church Blaster Aid Society in London, um, a Christian businessman who was something of a tycoon uh, decided he wanted his friends in the city to hear the gospel. So he went into one of these old city churches, you know, there are hundreds of them around, and found a chap there who really didn't know what he was meant to do. He he was actually a rather pathetic person, really, uh, just sitting in his vesture, wondering where he was there, because, of course, there was nobody coming into these little churches. And uh, I'm ashamed to say that my dear friend, as I say, was a bit of a tycoon. He more or less ordered him to invite me (laughs) <laughs> to preach every week. Um, so, and, and he guaranteed to get a, a congregation. 
I don't know how many the church held. I suppose about a hundred. I, I don't know more or less. Uh, so I started on Tuesdays. Uh, I can't remember the date. It must have been about um, when I went to church pastorate somewhere in the middle fifties. And so I preached every Tuesday there, and he got the place filled by more or less inviting all his business friends to come. Oh, wow. And an invitation to him meant that you more or less had to do it because he <laughs> was quite a formidable tycoon. Okay. This was extraordinary because I had that training. We, mm. The numbers kept up. Mm. So when I went to St. Helens, it wasn't de novo, you know. If I had started the business friends service on Tuesday from start, I think we'd still be getting 15 people. If you start with 15, you'll never get many more. But all the people from this city church, I've forgotten its name, came over, a lot of them came over. And so we had, what, 80 to start with. And very soon, uh, if you got that kind of number, things began to grow. So that's, that's how Tuesday grew and lasted for 30 years. So, Dick, as you've alluded to already, your ministry became well known for Bible teaching, speaking from the Bible. Why did you make that your priority? Well, because there is no other ministry. Um, as I say, things have got into a bad way. I think you would say probably across the West, which was very vulnerable to German theology. People had lost confidence in the Bible. One sign of this is that you go into a church and there will be no Bibles in the pew. And so people didn't know what they were meant to preach about. At St. John's Subcastro, where we went as a family, the vicar was a nice fellow, uh, but he'd had no Bible training of any kind. And... Uh, his sermons either began, today is St. John's Day. If he couldn't find a saint, the sermon would begin, it has been well said. He preached well for about 10 minutes. Yeah, he was a good man, but he'd had no background, like many vicars and rectors of that time. So sermons were short, best thoughts, exhortations, uh, church matters. Um, yes, that the Bible might be used, but characteristically, if you'd gone to the lectern, you would have found probably a book with selections from the Bible. Uh, so I don't think anybody today like yourselves could have any idea of how undermining German theology was in the 20s and 30s. So the... It wasn't that people were against the Bible, but the whole church had lost confidence that the Bible meant anything to people, and therefore they got Mother's Union talks, that kind of thing, exhortations. So that's what we were brought up on in Lewis, where I was brought up. Uh, we were a church-going family, and of course that was nothing like expository preaching. But once the Bible has come back into the lectern, there's no other way to preach, is there really? And anybody who was giving short talks soon found that uh, that wasn't adequate. The only place you'd find that 
the short 10-minute talk was, of course, in the Navy or the Army. I was in the Navy for my three-year service. And if you had a church parade there, the one thing that happened is that the officers would come up to the Padre beforehand and say, keep it short, Padre. <laughs> I think people have no idea what the pit from which we were dug in the 20s and 30s. That mm. in some amazing providential way, God brought the church back to the Bible in the 1940s and 50s. It's an interesting situation of them not being against the Bible, just the Bible was absent. That's right. Dick, you've mentioned what you call expository preaching. How would you describe expository preaching to someone who's never heard of it before? Well, what you're saying, of course, is, is, is extraordinary because there is no such thing as preaching which is not expository. That is to say, you come to the Bible, you open the Bible, and you have to say something about it. But what had happened through liberal theology and its reign is that people had learned to select, and therefore you got a verse or the vicar's thoughts on uh, Christmas, Easter, or whatever. Now, they weren't necessarily bad. The old rector at St. John, Subcastro and Lewis had not very much going for him, but his 10-minute sermon wasn't bad. But we didn't have Bibles in the pew. He didn't have a Bible in the pulpit. Therefore, where are you? But the moment you say that uh, preaching is about the Bible, there really isn't any alternative to expository preaching. Even if you have one verse, you've got to put it in its context, attempt to find out what it says, and explain it to the people. That's expository preaching. There isn't any other kind. This is what is so odd, that expository preaching came upon the Christian world as an explosion of something very odd and strange. It's as though eating your meal at midday was odd. (laughs) So what you're saying is if you're preaching in a non-expositional way, you're not really preaching at all. No, you're not. No, you're giving a Boy Scout talk, aren't you? Um, That sort of thing. Now, mind you, the Bible is not necessarily an easy book. It is on the surface perfectly straightforward, but the moment you start to study it, you realize it's quite hard work. So now we come to the second issue, that the clergyman is by nature an activist. So though my old rector was far past it in terms of strength and so on, you you spend your time doing things. Uh, and the idea of spending the morning <laughs> studying hasn't really occurred to you. So the first thing I discovered when I was a curate is that people didn't know what I was doing. And uh, my dear rector wondered what I was doing because I was working in the morning uh, studying for all these talks I had to give. But the Bible basically is a straightforward book, but it does require a lot of hard work. So a sermon would probably take the average curate, if he was serious about it, a minimum of half a dozen hours at least. Many young curates took a lot more. And Mrs. Jones in her pew would think this very odd because all he does is to get up and speak. 
So I think the whole evangelical world, not the rest of the, I think the rest of the church is very slow to catch up on that. The evangelical world, influenced by the Billy Graham Crusades, influenced by revived youth work, which is going on all around the country, uh, the new young minister suddenly discovered they had this Bible to preach, mm. that at college they had pretty little adequate. At my theological college, I preached twice. I can remember one of them. It was at a village called Six Mile Bottom. Can you imagine anything more absurd in training to take a person to Six Mile Bottom on Sunday, where they very kindly were willing to listen to this student, on Monday, just aside half an hour to discuss the sermon, and that was all. This is because the people who manned the theological college were scholars and not preachers. None of the four staff at my college were much in the way of, they were good men, good scholars, only one of them really could be called a preacher. So we had to teach ourselves, and a lot of things grew up, like the proclamation just later on, that was much later on, to help people who had no training, no proper training. We'd had scholastic training at college, endlessly, but actual practical how to do the job. Imagine learning, uh, being a surgeon and arriving at the, the bed like that. I mean, the thing is unbelievable, isn't it? But that was the situation after the war. Logic did not preach in it from the Bible, and that was a very, very big job to start. So can you give us a sense in your early days, if you didn't learn to preach at college, where do you think you did learn to preach? Well, I learned at these boys' camps. Mm. If you're faced with a crowd of uh, energetic boys in the morning after breakfast, but crowded into the prayers room, who never had to, to, to sit still for 10 minutes, and the leader of the camp gives you the privilege of giving that morning talk. You jolly will work hard at it. <laughs> um, I, just, I had no idea that I could speak, and I would never have discovered if I hadn't gone to these boys' camps. I think I discovered a certain aptitude for it, but the most I would be given in a camp, which would be about 12 days, would be three talks. So that's how I learned. I was I was a leader for what four years. That's how I learned the craft. Well, I never learned at college, no. And I guess if you can preach to moody teenagers, city workers, is precisely. Like... Well, they're not much different. Of course. <laughs> they, they come in the middle of the day, full of their own things. Yeah, yeah. It really was extraordinary that that. So when you look at the rest of the church. Well, we're not here to criticize, are we? But if you look at the liberal church, you see the, the difficulty they were in. Um, their man had had no preaching. The Anglo-Catholic knew what he had to do. His whole ministry, because I went to an Anglo-Catholic school, so I understood their ministry, that was sacramental. The evangelical was preaching, the liberal was lost. And that's why the Church of England was in such a state from which it really has, in a sense, never quite recovered. Dick, I really enjoyed what you said about the fact that the Bible is a simple book on the one hand, but then you spend any amount of time in it, you realise it's really, there's quite a lot to grapple with. That's um, right. Someone far wiser than me once said, it's the Bible is shallow enough for a child to paddle in it, but deep enough for a whale Isn't to swim right? around. It's so true. 
how has that impacted the way you spend your time studying a passage? Well, I mean, to take, there are so many sides to this. To take one side, after the war, the second-hand bookshops were full of excellent theology at basement prices. We were a very f- privileged crowd, I think, in the 40s. Um, I put together a library at very small cost of some of the best books because they'd been piling up in the war. Uh, so in those days, you would find a second-hand bookshop in most towns which had a good theological section. You won't find that today because they've been combed dry by students. <laughs> and therefore, But, of course, to make up for that, since the end of the war, God has raised up many scholars and so there's proper, proper books from each generation of scholars. So the first thing you did in my generation was to spend your few pennies, and they really were cheap, these books, to build up a decent library, which is essential to any preacher. And Dick, what does the Bible say about preaching? Yes, I thought that was an interesting question of yours. (laughs) The Bible has so many ways in which it presents itself, like parables, uh, characters like Joseph, a wonderful story. Um, the Proverbs, totally different. The Psalms, hymns of praise. The prover- the great uh, prophets, very, very different. I think that's God-ordained, that the, there's uh, infinite variety. Imagine the difference between Paul in Romans and the Song of Solomon. Mm. Uh, you could, can't imagine a difference any greater. So you've got this variety, which is essential to all academic work, isn't it, or any thinking, really. And I think that's part of the way in which you learn the different ways in which the Bible approaches people. Actually, that's really helpful that there is different ways of preaching that is still expository. It's still working hard at the text, thinking about verses in context. It's so different, sometimes in song, sometimes in exhortation. So there's no excuse for being dull. If you're a dull preacher, it's because you're a dull person and I've never heard anything <laughs> stimulating. But part of becoming a preacher, of course, is listening to people who are not dull. Yeah. Now, as a teenager, I only went once to camp. Believe it or not, my parents didn't like me to be away on the holidays. I had very good parents and very nice holidays. So they only allowed me to go once. But the seed was sown. Then I went as a leader later. That was the time I was trained, not at college. But if you hear good speaking, you'll know it'll be the mm. same afterwards, mm. will you? Mm. Because you realise there's a standard. Mm. But if you heard in those days the average sermon, you would be like the naval commander who came up to me uh, in the Navy and said, keep it short. Mm-hmm. Dick, were there any mistakes that you made that you learned from in the early days of your ministry? Oh, I'm sure there were horrifying things. Again, I thank God often for those uh, holiday camps for young people because after you'd given your talk, uh, the next morning it would be discussed in the leader's room and there were no holes barred. Um, It was a normal, healthy situation, unlike what you get in the church. In the church, if you discuss your sermon, 
People don't like to say anything unkind, do they? Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you very much. For... <laughs> My principal was quite hopeless at college. He would say after I'd preached, thank you very much, Dick. What help is that? <laughs> uh, at camp, someone say, would say, uh, you know, ruthless things. <laughs> <laughs> you held your mouth in front of your hand in front of your mouth throughout your talk. As you're doing now, do you see? A very natural thing to do, isn't it? But you never forgot that because you realise that nobody had heard. You never got that at college, really. When I was at Cornhill, they told me that my fingers moved too much. Well, you see, Cornhill would be the same sort of thing. They were quite frank, weren't they? They they were quite frank to me, yes. (laughs) And thank God for that. It may have hurt at the time. But you, uh, I very seldom got criticism from people, except people who, who liked you and were Christians, who might say that was far too difficult for this congregation or whatever, you know, that kind of comment. Mm. So what you're saying is you made mistakes, but thankfully there was an environment where those were commented upon and you could improve. Yes, I think the leader's room at camp for, five, was it four or five years when I was an undergraduate? You see, I had... Two years at college, I was an ex-serviceman, so I had two in it rather than three, then two years at theological college. So I had at least four years as a leader in these boys' camps. Uh, they went camps and they were held in schools, which was a lot more comfortable. <laughs> um, so I had four years of fairly ruthless comment from my fellows <laughs> if I had dribbled or held my mouth in front of her or talked nonsense. I, I take that early training to be oh, invaluable. Mm-hmm. You never got it really up mm-hmm. elsewhere. mentioned the midweek lunchtime talks. They started in the 60s, I believe. 1961. 1961. I hear stories of how people would come in their droves in their lunch breaks, take a break from work and come and listen to your preaching. Why do you think the expository preaching drew such a crowd? I've often asked that question myself, I know. Yes, it was extraordinary uh, in the early years, though it continued. Sometimes it was stronger than others, but we were never less than 400, I suppose, on a Tuesday. On some occasions when God seemed to be moving, it was impossible to, to get people in. They would actually sit on the pulpit steps. Wow. And they couldn't find anywhere else to fit. And St. Helens is quite large. I think you have to say that was a work of God. Um, it doesn't happen today, partly because of COVID, partly because, but no, not much, so much COVID as a fact, the people now work at home. That put an end to that, really. And so my successor, who is an excellent man, has had to do things in a different way, though he still has a good little crowd coming on Tuesday. But I think you have to say that those 25 years of Tuesdays were a work of God that doesn't necessarily happen though a person might be gifted. God had a moment that he wanted to to speak, and to see them pouring in was an extraordinary sight. Mm, I'm sure. An extraordinary sight. 
my grandmother, she passed away a few years ago, but when I told her I was going to St. Helen's Bishopsgate, she told me that back in the 60s, she was working in an office nearby and a colleague said to her, I can see something going on at this church around the corner. There's a queue out the door. And they had no idea what it was, but it was the Tuesday lunchtime right. Bible talk. It's incredible. And of course, people looked out their windows and they saw, see, people have got a, a limited time. And so people left it to the last minute to come. <laughs> and therefore, the officers they were looking at saw this extraordinary stream <laughs> of people coming to the door, forcing their way in, sitting on the steps. And I had to play fair to that. Uh, therefore, my talk was from five minutes past one to 25 minutes to two at exactly half an hour. And I stopped exactly on time. And we had this wonderful lady, Mrs. Aldred, whose husband had died rather early. She was a gifted caterer, so she went back to catering. And so she came up from Rygrate every Tuesday uh, and produced the most delicious rolls and sandwiches and so on and wow. coffee, which was immediately on at 25 to 2, so that people could come to the service knowing they would I would stop on time, mm. knowing that they could have lunch there and be back within the hour, mm. which was fairly, and the, people were pretty disciplined in those days. I don't know whether it is today. Mm. They ne the younger generation needed to be back. Mm. So that's how that worked in a way. And that was an important thing, that it was efficient. The church isn't known for that. Uh, preachers dribble on. Mm. Churches are not ready for them. The church is cold and not warm. There's no decent coffee to be had. Everything went like clockwork. But it had to, or why should they come? Dick, we've been talking so far about preaching. Yeah. Does expositional Bible teaching work in any other form? Oh, yes, I think so. You see, ideally, it's not a lecture, is it? Hmm. And therefore, a great deal has to be left out in expository preaching. Hmm. So at the moment, what I do is to, I, I produce uh, lectures or rather short lectures and expository outlines for people. So at the moment, I'm doing Luke 1 to 11. Now, there's enough there for a lecture. So if you're going to preach on that, you're going to have to decide what you're going to concentrate on that must be true to the content, but doesn't say everything. Mm. The lecture says everything. It must play fair and answer the difficult bits. So we invented, well, we didn't invent, of course, we didn't invent lectures. I think one of the best times we ever had was when we took uh, lecture rooms in London University and we had a weeknight uh, lecture in which the whole of that passage of Luke would be properly dealt with so that there is a clear difference between what I did on Tuesday, which is really a talk, and what I did on a Wednesday night at the university, which was a lecture, understandably a lecture, it would be a higher level. I might expect them to understand uh, history or language or something and take the trouble to discover what it all meant. 
So the lecture is different from the sermon. Mm. The sermon will become a chat. I can remember one man asking me uh, when I've heard him preach for uh, if I would give him a chat. Now, you can't build up a person's... It's like building up a child, isn't it, on pap, sweets. And that's what it was, a sweet. So the chat really had to be abolished. So Tuesday was a serious talk for half an hour. I can't think actually why it wasn't shorter. But then on Wednesday night in the university, the, the lecture would be for an hour. And Dick, on that, I know that you eventually set up the Proclamation Trust, which seeks to train preachers. Can you just give us a sense of how that project began? I couldn't remember when you sent me the notes, but funnily enough, I got a, a, a retired minister, a lovely guy, chose to, for his wife's sake, he chose to write out a, a, a story of his ministry. And for the first time, I understood how the Proclamation Trust started. <laughs> we went down to John Stott's cottage, which was a great place for meeting friends on holiday. And so I organized a week down at the cottage in the summer for young ministers, and we discussed the principles of preaching. He came twice, he tells me. I have no memory of this at all. He came twice to this when he was a young minister. And that tells me that that's how the proclamation started, because those who came to these kind of studies said that this is completely new. We didn't get in our college. Could you please organize some conferences? So we, we set up an organization, and um, we had wonderful conferences for, for many years. I don't know how far they go on now, um, but the idea is still there. And what do you think a young preacher, or any preacher, needs to learn in order to teach the Bible well? Well, I don't think they need to be uh, an expert in Hebrew. Mm. I think a lot of that was um, snobbishness at the university level. Uh, we weren't forced to learn Hebrew, but we were forced to learn Greek, or rather New Testament Greek, which is rather a different thing. And most of us, our knowledge of New Testament Greek was pretty elementary. Uh, I would like to prick that bubble. I don't think that that is an absolute necessity. Otherwise, what are you going to do for all your local preachers, your London city missioners? Are you going to say they're second-class mm. citizens? Mm. No, I think God is greater than that, and that every language in the world is capable of giving us the word of God. Um, yes, obviously, if you can get extra New Testament Greek, that will be a help, and because you'll be able to uh, use a lectionary, which is invaluable, obviously. But we mustn't be snobbish about this. The, the village preacher without any knowledge of Greek, can know his Bible properly. Mm. What he's got to do is to work at his passage and his uh, section really hard. He'll be wise to use commentaries. There's always a public library with something to help as anybody. Um, he'll be wise to learn to get friends. And I think one of the things that happened in my early days is we got to know each other. Because evangelicals ran conferences, we began not to be isolated. 
and therefore we got to know each other. We were forced as curates in that part of Kent by the Bishop Rochester to, to meet once a week with some elderly clergyman. It wasn't much use, but we met one another. Mm. And we needed that. Mm. Was that to sharpen one another oh, in yes. your teaching and Absolutely. thinking? Absolutely. To think in the, the early days, often people were quite isolated. Mm. So we, we, we got to have, and through Proclamation Trust, of course, people got to know friends. And in the Proclamation Trust, for example, at St. Helens, you know, we would fill the place because they were so anxious to be with other people and learn what other people were doing. Mm. You learn so much more from other people, don't you, like that? Mm -hmm. What did this look like day to day at the Proclamation Trust? How did you plan on teaching these things to the Bible teachers? Well, our conferences were very short. Uh, People hadn't got a lot of money. So they would be, say, from Tuesday to Friday morning, Tuesday afternoon to Friday morning. I can't remember now, but that was the sort of thing. We would take these conference centres, which were anxious for help, for people midweek. They were empty. So we got a good deal. And uh, we would have the men who showed that they had gifts. There were plenty of them around. Uh, we would discuss evangelism. We would discuss expository use of the Bible. Uh, we talk about all the things that the minister has to do. And what a joy to find that other people came across the same problems, helped you to find solutions to them, and so on. So what you're saying is that the real value of the Proclamation Trust wasn't so much the academic content from the front, but the relational aspects of preachers That's getting right. to know each other. Well, I had a letter only a fortnight ago, you see, from a Welsh minister. I've never heard of him. And he said they changed his life. Wow. Because, of course, he would be isolated. He would mm. be talked down to by the older man. That's very true in chapel life, you know. Mm. People form themselves as kind of bishops. And to meet your own fellows for, for two nights and three, two and a half days, tremendous joy. Mm. And they would suddenly discover answers to their problems and and friendships and so on. Yeah, I think that's what you said is very right. What was said from the front was valuable, but it was even as valuable to meet Mm. other people. Mm. I I mean, I did Cornhill eight years ago, Cornhill, which is the new expression of Proclamation Trust. And thinking back, the things I really remember that helped, well, it was some of the lectures, but it was really the coffee breaks. That's right. Mm. Indeed. And getting to know people. Indeed. Mm. Yeah. I'm actually off on one of these conferences with Proclamation Trust in just a few months. Um, so Dick, these ministries that you set up, they continue today really wonderfully. What are your prayers for them now? Well, one prayer at the moment, my dear, is that... Um, we should be watchful because Satan is going to have a crack at it, isn't he? Yeah. Well, Dick, thank you so much for speaking to us today. It's been really fantastic to meet you. It's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Dick. Yeah, thank you very much for coming. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bible Matters podcast. 
If you enjoyed this episode, why not like and subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. The Bible Matters Project is funded entirely by the generous gifts of our listeners. And if you yourself would like to become a financial partner with us, you can find more details on how to give in the show notes. The Bible Matters Podcast is an initiative of St. Helens Bishopsgate and is created by myself, Leo Elborn, along with Tiff Stromso. Music for this episode was written and produced by me, Leo Elborn, and Josh Stidwell. You can listen to more of Josh's work at Stids with a one, that's S-T-1-D-S. Thanks again for joining and we hope to see you again soon.